Bible Chapel, just in case you got confused. That's where we are, and we're glad to be here. Boulevard Bible Chapel is a bit like our home church in Florida. This is where Jane was baptized, and there we go, we're on. And so we're always glad to be back in Boulevard. This is actually the grand climax, well, it may not be grand, but it's the climax of a preaching tour in Florida, and we're having to, well, we're glad to be in your house, but we'll be leaving there on Friday, and uh, before we know it, we'll be back in Canada, and I'm waiting for the snow to go before we get back. So here we are. I, I want to uh, talk today, morning and evening, about two challenges from the book of Daniel, and then we'll pick up something Wednesday that's a spin-off from that, from the Gospels. But I want to talk about chapter 3 this morning. That's a great story of the fiery furnace because we're going to talk about the God whose presence protects. And the application for you this morning is to trust him. And tonight, very important, the last three chapters of Daniel, you'll be in for a midnight talk because we're doing three long chapters. But I want to talk about the prophetic aspects, the God whose plans are certain. And the lessons for the day are clear to trust God and anticipate his plans. So that's where we're going, and uh, I'm going to challenge you about prayer and some other things on Wednesday night. So let's get into Daniel 3. We didn't read it. It's a long chapter. You may know the story, but I'll put the key verses up as we go, talking about the God whose presence protects, calling you to trust him. I don't know whether you ever watched those TV series, you know, like the soap opera style that end almost every episode with a cliffhanger. You know, the three friends are out there, and this is in Canada, so we got snow. Three friends are out there, and suddenly, as the music plays, the closing music, the monster moves towards them. And then it's over. You've got to wait for the next episode. Well, I've got to tell you, Daniel 3 is really one of the most famous cliffhanger stories in the Old Testament. It's about the amazing thing that happened to another three friends. Uh, these were three friends of Daniel. Daniel wasn't there. If you want to know why Daniel wasn't there, you better ask me afterwards. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his close colleagues, he was away, and there they are. And the story's about them. And if you don't know the story, and uh, if you have Daniel 3 open, you'll notice uh, verse 18 really leaves you with a feeling that you might have at the end of that TV soap opera episode. It finishes with a very dramatic cliffhanger. I mean, throwing three guys in a furnace, that's pretty, pretty uh, grim stuff. Now, I know most of you know the story pretty well. You know how things worked out for these three friends. But you stay with me, because the climax of Daniel 3 does include some very gripping stuff. So let's get into it. What I'm going to do is present this story like a drama in three acts. It's a three-act drama in, in acts. And I don't mean the book of acts. I mean act one in our drama, act two in our drama. In acts one and two, we'll focus on some key characteristics, or one in particular, of the people we meet, because what I want to do is not only talk about them, but talk about you. I want to review something you need to avoid. Pride. And something you need to nurture, and this is our main focus, total trust in God. 
So that's where we're going. But you have a job to do. Your job is to think to what extent is a scene in your life. Don't just think about King Nebuchadnezzar. Think about, hey, what's my life like? So that's your job. While I preach, you've got to be thinking about those applications in your life. So let's get into it. Act 1 is going to be about Nebuchadnezzar, that king consumed with pride. Act 2 is going to be about these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who trusted God. And as we get to the end of the chapter, of course, as always, the grand climax is what God does. God who protects his servants. So that's our structure. And we're going to get right into it by talking about this king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king consumed with pride. Uh, if you read Daniel at all, and you should read the opening verses, uh, maybe during this week you can think about it, because chapter 2 describes King Nebuchadnezzar, the famous story of his dream. He dreamed of an image. Daniel interprets that. That's great prophecy, but we'll leave the prophecy till tonight. But, but he dreams of this image in which... Daniel points out the head of gold in this image represents you, Nebuchadnezzar, and the kingdom of Babylon. He was a very powerful king in Babylon in those days. He could just wave his finger and have someone put to death. Unlimited resources, vast armies. Uh, and, uh, and what happened between chapter 2 and chapter 3, where we are today, some time has passed, and Nebuchadnezzar gets to think about being the head of gold in this image this dream, and he said, that's not enough. And he wanted it all. So the opening act in chapter 3 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar built an enormous statue, 90 foot tall, a huge thing, a, a huge gold statue of himself. And the Bible says he erected it on the flat plain of Jura. Of course, that's so that everybody could see it from a great distance. I'm a little fellow. I've always wondered if I could have a statue a bit bigger. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted it as big as he could make it, for everyone to see it. Uh, and so, actually, let me tell you one little sideline here. You know, this plain of Jura, th there's a lot of evidence that this was near where the town of Babel was erected way back in G Genesis 11. And it says in Genesis 11:4 that people erected a tower in this place because they wanted to make a name for themselves. That was one of the follies of humanity. Wanted to make a name for themselves. And that's clearly what Nebuchadnezzar wanted, for everyone to focus on him. Uh, to see his name is great. And so we meet what we actually see in chapter 2, which I can't talk about this visit, we see Nebuchadnezzar's big problem, pride. Uh, and as so often is the case, of course, he was a very powerful king, that power is the thing that feeds this ugly tendency to pride. I mean, it's not a new phenomenon or an old phenomenon. You see it today a little bit in North Korea. North Korea is a mild version of the situation in Daniel 3. Uh, this was uh, King jong Yong's father, but they have to bow and do bow when they see images like that, and that's today. But it seems, going back to Nebuchadnezzar, whenever we meet Nebuchadnezzar, his immature pride, his self-absorption is so evident. I mean, he was incredibly powerful. Well, powerful though he was, his urge was really, he's like a child. You know, if you've had children or grandchildren, I'm at the grandchildren stage, that, um, 
What you notice about kids is that when they do anything they think is clever, they say, look at me. My, my grandkids will stand on their head or try to, and they'll say, look at me. A bit past that, now they've grown big. But, uh, and they say, yes, granddad, you're not looking. Hey, that's a childish response, but that's Nebuchadnezzar's. He's an extreme example of this desire to, to pay attention to him and how power corrupts and how seductive pride is. Pride and power overwhelming. And I want you to learn from Nebuchadnezzar. It's very easy through pride to put yourself really in a place where God should be. There's a little verse in Proverbs 16, 17. It says, pride comes before destruction. Nebuchadnezzar is an example of it. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, it was way over the top. You should read this chapter. There's a repetition of all the musical instruments. There's detailed lists of all the guys who were supposed to show up to bow on cue. It's a mandatory act of worship. When the music sounded, they had to bow. And the instruments were all there. There was everything, but I think uh, there were no bagpipes, as far as I can see. They didn't have a Salvation Army piano accordion, which probably Jane would have liked to see, but there was everything there. Now listen, if, you, if you're a Christian believer, and I've got to talk about the situation if you're not, but if you're a born-again Christian, and you want to become a mature believer in Christ, you, you have to have a completely opposite focus to Nebuchadnezzar's. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's image was all about look at me but your job is to look to Jesus this is the focus our goal you know our goal don't try to be a Nebuchadnezzar our goal should be to become like the powerless widow in the New Testament man when Jesus was born they took him to the temple and there was this powerless poor widow Anna and we read in Luke 2 38 when she encountered Christ she spoke about him to all. Isn't that an incredible example? Forget the powerful king, powerless Anna, spoke about Christ to all. And that's the challenge, because there can be no place for pride if you're a follower of Christ. What Paul discovered is what you'll discover, and he said it so clearly, he said, our strength is made perfect in weakness. And once you recognize that the real power is God's power, Pride's put in its right place. What pride does, and you know, as a preacher, it's a great temptation. People say nice things to you to feel proud, and it, it sneaks in. But but pride, pride is a way of distorting how we see ourselves, and it, it's so important to see yourselves correctly. Let me say, it's important to have a balanced self-image. Now, don't think being the opposite to proud, that is being humble, means you go around feeling worthless. Let me remind you that every child of God, and that's every one of us who knows Jesus, is a treasure that Christ gave his life to win. You never should forget that you actually, if you're a believer, you're a child of the King of Kings. So you should have a very healthy self-image, and a healthy self-image it enables you to see, yes, you have talents. You all have talents given by the Holy Spirit. Whatever talents we have, they're valuable gifts from God, uh, and you can live with satisfaction and contentment and with gratitude once you recognize that. 
And that was very evident in these three friends that we're going to talk about, the heroes of this story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't shy wimps who went around feeling inadequate. Actually, they had key roles in the royal court. God raised them to key positions. But they knew it was because God had placed them there that there was no basis for pride. They couldn't go around saying, I did it. You can't go to life and say, look what I've achieved, you see. Because as a believer, it's always with God's help we did it. So as a Christian, if God gives you some power at work or in any place, it's so you can use it for blessing and for God's glory. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is an extreme example of how not to live. We, we need to look at these characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and remember, first of all, where the real power lies, and then to live with gratitude and thankfulness for God's gifts and for what God has enabled us to accomplish, no pride in our own accomplishments. So that's Act 1, Nebuchadnezzar. What a lesson he teaches us about pride. But the big story, of course, is Act 2, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men who totally trusted God, faithful men. Now, you've got to understand, in those days, things were very different. This order from the king to bow to this massive image was, was, was not just something you could choose about. I mean, it was death penalty, if not. I mean, he just put people to death in droves. And... You see, it was not a problem for the idol-worshipping Gentiles, the regular guys. All they had to do was add one more image to the multiple gods they worshipped. They, they didn't understand the one true God. They were polytheistic. But for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who knew and trusted the one true God, it was a different story. Now, that's the way it is for believers. You're, if you're a Christian believer that you'll find there are many, many things that people do that for them is no problem at all. But for you, it can be a real difficulty because, you see, they're doing, not doing what God wants us to do. And your goal is to do what God wants you to do. And, and the secret of consistency of these faithful men was, of course, that they knew what God wanted and they were determined to obey God. I mean, they knew the commandments. Way back in Exodus, you shall not make any graven image, no likeness to anything, and you shall not bow down to it. Scripture was clear on that. And so, for Shadrach and for Meshach and Abednego, priority number one, what a challenge, was to be faithful to the Lord. Now, this, of course, meant death. I mean, this was no small thing. And we have to take this seriously. Because it's true today, you know what Peter said? He said in Acts 5, he said, and it's still important, you ought to obey God rather than men. It's not a hard scripture to understand. And you say, yeah, but idolatry, that, that's not relevant today. We don't bow down to idols. But it is relevant because at its core, it's all about obedience to God. It's all about putting God above everything else. Of course, Maybe we no longer bow to idols and image, but a lot of people worship at the God of self. I mean, that brand of modern idolatry, it's all over the place. It takes many forms. You go around Barnes & Noble or the big bookstores, go to the self-help self section, and you'll see it there. Books about yourself and 
focus on yourself and take notice of yourself and this this putting yourself where God should be is not an old problem, it's a contemporary problem. And it's absolutely the opposite of what Jesus taught. I mean, Jesus said, look, if you want to know what the first and the greatest commandment is, it's this, that you love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Mark twenty thirty. And if you love the Lord with everything that's in us, uh, I mean, there's just no room in your heart for any form of idolatry, particularly God himself. What a contrast there is, you see, between Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and the others in this chapter. You, the Chaldeans, now this is mainly in, in, in chapter 2, but what happened, just as background, the, why they, the, this was a big problem is the Chaldeans, these wise men, out of envy, set a trap for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They were jealous of them and they wanted to accuse them before the king. So this whole business of worshipping, the image was their idea uh, and it was really a trap they set. Now you've got to think about this because these three faithful men with Daniel had actually organized a prayer meeting in chapter 2 that had saved everyone's life. They were all the wise men were scheduled to be killed because they didn't figure out the dream. And, uh, and, and Daniel arranged an all-night prayer meeting. And, and chapter 2 describes how Daniel and his faithful friends saved the Chaldeans through this prayer meeting that Daniel organized. Now, there might have been some gratitude there, but you'd think these three guys would be pretty bitter. I mean, man, we're, we're going to be put to death all because of a trap set by these Chaldeans and we saved their lives. But you see, these three men were like we should be as Christians, living in a fallen world, in an alien culture. A culture, well, it's characterized by ingratitude and jealousy. Uh, we're surrounded by people like these Chaldeans who, and they can affect our attitude. I mean, people who do nasty things and and, 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 and create problems for us. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what? they weren't bitter. Why weren't they bitter? Because they were doing what God wants, wanted them to do and doing what God wants us to do. It never leads to bitterness or resentment. You know what it leads to is contentment. If you want a content life, do what God wants you to do. So it's not resentment. Even though there was plenty of room for it, they'd save their lives and yet they'd trap them and we're trying to kill them. But it was contentment. You see, obedience to God and bitterness are incompatible. If you have any bitterness in your heart, it's not related to your obedience to God. And make no mistake about it, don't forget Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that the king's threat, you either turn or you burn, wasn't an idle threat. I mean, this wasn't a vague threat, and yet they remained steadfast. When you think about it, there are all kinds of rationalizations they might have used to persuade themselves, well, let's comply with the king's command. I mean, we'll bow. They could have said, because we're not bowing on the inside. I mean, they, they could have made the kind of rationalizations we might use if we're tempted to compromise, you know. Well, the end justifies the means. That's never a valid argument for the Christian who wants to obey God. They could have said, well, it's difficult here. I mean, 
you know, when in Rome do what the Romans do. Uh, maybe they could have said, well, it won't hurt anyone, a little bowing, uh, you know. In fact, they might have said, look, it'll do a lot more good for us to survive than to be killed. I mean, there's all kinds of compromises. They could have said, well, you know, in fact, the old classic that was used to justify participation in the Holocaust was, well, unfortunately, we were forced to do it. They could have said we had no choice. Or they could have claimed, maybe they, they could have said, look, we should show some gratitude to the king. I mean, he has promoted us. We're in high positions. None of that. Uh, and what a lesson to beware of the temptation to rationalize wrong, making excuses to justify compromise. I mean, let's be like these three faithful men. Trust in the Lord in all circumstances. Pay attention, not only to what they did, but to what they didn't do. I mean, look at these guys. They didn't go looking for trouble. I mean, they simply lived consistently, quietly, remaining faithful to God. Now, there are times when you need to take a stand, uh, but look, you live like these guys. They didn't live offensively, spoiling for a fight. When you read this chapter, it was the others that were against them that caused the trouble. Verse 8, with all these accusations. Now, if you're a Christian in the workplace, don't be those who are out to get you. They'll make life difficult for you if you don't go along with their compromises, dodgy practices, all kinds of things go on. People say, <laughs> you can cheat on your taxes. I mean, everyone does it. But you see, they didn't do that. But what, what they did was a great example because living like a Christian is all about balance. So you don't live causing offense, try to live without causing offense, but always be ready to witness, to speak out against wrong whenever the opportunity arises. You see, I, I know a Christian man who rushes around with the Bible so offensively that he kind of like throws it at them. Look, the offensiveness of the gospel does not give license for Christians to be offensive. And, and I found their, their example incredibly challenging. There was a confident, unhesitating response by these three men when they were asked about the image. And they acted very, in a very balanced way, but their confidence, you know what it came from? It came from the fact that they knew and trusted God. How much more should we look? If you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, and if you don't, that's the most important thing we've got to talk about. If you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, don't worry about approaching God. Do it with confidence. I read Ephesians 3 this morning. Wonderful passage. Talks about God's eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ. That's tonight's topic. What's God's big plan? But the consequence, Paul says, is through faith, in Christ, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. You can approach God with freedom and confidence. Now, that's what these men understood. In fact, let's get uh, moving quickly as we begin to talk about them. These three men understood two things about God, his power and his sovereignty. And they firmly and confidently said, hey, God will and we won't. It's an amazing passage. 
in verse 17, he said, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us, recognizing God's power, but seeing his sovereignty, they said, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to worship the golden image. That's God's sovereignty. And it's very risky. I mean, even in North Korea, it's risky if you refuse to bow to a despot. But they said, hey, we are not going to worship the golden image. I mean, they were totally consistent in their faithfulness. They were determined to live, always obeying God. And they were totally confident. They fully trusted God in all circumstances. What a contrast. Let me, let me just quickly contrast that with Nebuchadnezzar. You may remember that when Daniel interpreted the dream in chapter 2, he was all, all for God. He said, this is wonderful. And I want to contrast these three men with the king just for a moment because the king's response in, in chapter 2 sounded great, but it was short-lived and shallow. The king answered when he interpreted the dream in the previous chapter. He said, truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. I mean, it sounded great. Sometimes people say they've made some kind of profession, but this, this was shallow, it didn't last. Look, verse 15, chapter 3, it says, If you're not going to worship the golden image, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who will deliver you out of my hands? That was a direct our challenge to God. And uh, if you read the chapter, it's incredible. He upped the heat seven times and, and he got the toughest soldiers and it was so hot they managed to get the, these three men into the furnace fully clothed and it was quite an outfit they were wearing and in the rush to quell Nebuchadnezzar's anger, they themselves got burnt to death. And that big cliff, cliffhanger moment comes when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down into the inferno. I mean, this is when you doubt God, right? These men trusted God. This is the moment. But let's get to Act 3 quickly. I want to tell you, God's presence protects his servants. Listen, what Nebuchadnezzar saw, I mean, this huge furnace had some kind of a viewing hole. The king could see into the interior, and he saw four people and when he was assured that only three men were cast into the furnace, and he said, well, there's a fourth person there, he began to wonder. And he said a strange thing. He said, actually, he said, someone who's like a son of God or an angel is there. What he meant by this, how much he understood about the supernatural realm, we don't know. A lot of evangelical scholars feel confident it was Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, fulfilling a promise. This is a promise God made in Isaiah 43, a wonderful promise. He said, but now thus says the Lord that created you, O Israel, fear not, you are mine. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, neither will the flame kindle you. That's a promise. I'm sure they knew that scripture. But like so many miraculous interventions of God, it's just a staggering story how he looked after the details. Nebuchadnezzar looked. He said, they're loose. They're loose. But he said, it's only the ropes that bound them that are burned away. I mean, that's incredible. But of course, 
That's the way God operates. I mean, that's the promise we have. Remember what the Lord promised you and I. He promised to loose us from the bonds of sin that binds us. Only the Lord can do that. So Christians sing. Sometimes with joy. My chains fell off. My heart is free. Well, here in a literal, physical sense, the ropes that burn them were, shattered, were, were, were moved away. You see, there's so much to encourage us in this incredible intervention by the Lord. I mean, God delivered these three men in a way they could never have imagined. They thought perhaps he'd keep them out of the fire. But he didn't do that. God brought them through the fire. God was with them in the fire. And that's a very important principle in our trials. Because he's the God that you can trust. Not that you'll be out of the fire all the time. Not that you'll have no troubles. But you can trust because he's always with us in every circumstance and trial. And we can all... If you're an older Christian, Jane and I could spend a lot of time giving you examples of that. They were untouched by the fire. You know, the verse 27 is amazing. It says, not a hair singed, no smell of smoke on their clothing. I mean... The details are astounding. You know, I grew up in England. You can tell from my accent. We had a tradition in England. On November the 5th, we all burnt effigies of a guy called Guy Fawkes, who they tell us in 1600-something about it, tried to burn down Parliament. And to this day, all the kids stand around these bonfires and uh, we roast potatoes and have a good time. But I tell you, <laughs> when the kids, like I did as a kid, stand by that fire, mother say, put your clothes out in the shed. Oh, you smell of smoke. <laughs> the, this is an amazing little detail. They were totally and completely untouched by the fire, and their witnesses to this were their accusers who were forced by the evidence to give testimony to the power of God to deliver. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego became living testimonies to the way God protects and delivers those that trust in him. I hope you've got a testimony. I hope you're a living testimony. You see, because what the Lord did for these three, he can do for you. Because God still guides, and he still does surprising and wonderful things today. And if you live consistently and obediently, always confidently trusting God, you will have a fantastic testimony. I was fortunate to go in a Christian home and I grew up with stories of God's miraculous working. I, I like to tell you sometime about the miraculous conversion of my father and all he did. But I thought about it because in verse 30, it said, and the king promoted them. They were not only rescued, but they were promoted. And it reminded me, as a boy, I used to sit at a table. And my dad, who was a, a man who was set for a life of crime, and God miraculously saved would tell me about a, his boss persecuting him at work. His boss actually predicted his death. <laughs> and his boss died. And who got the job? My dad. And the, the people in the office were so impressed, there was a little plaque in, in the entrance to this big engineering works because dad became chief accountant. And I thought about that and said, and the king promoted them. Because God does stuff today. You think about it. I mean, this God who was present with these three men in the furnace is the same God. Listen to this very carefully. This is not a time to fall asleep, although it's almost time to quit. Listen. 
This God is the one who, when darkness descended around the cross, had to abandon his beloved son. And Jesus had to cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want you to realize this is what love that we remembered in the breaking of bread, what love God has for us. He was present when these three men needed help. He's present when you need help. But as a holy God, he was absent when Christ died for our sins. But having made clear that God can and does deliver, I have to say this. I'll just take a few minutes because I've got to say this. Not always. There are martyrs today who are saying, but even if not. And as I speak, there'll be someone whose life is being given for the gospel because they're faithful to the Lord. And so the real challenge is that we, like these three heroes, would live with total confidence in our God, who by his constant presence protects and delivers us, and to fully trust him and say, even if not. You see, these three faithful men challenge us to live with unwavering trust in the Lord, whatever happens and to recognize the sovereignty of God and be ready to follow him even through the valley of the shadow of death because that's the place where he's present. You know Psalm 23 so well, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you're with me. It's the presence of God that makes a difference. And don't run away with the idea from my sermon that there's some precedent in Scripture that guarantees it will always be a miraculous rescue. God can and does do that. But you know, Peter was released from prison through prayer. James was martyred. God is sovereign. But the promise of his presence as a purposeful God who desires our eternal blessing, that's what enables us to face suffering. We're always comforted to know that God is in control and he suffers with us. God is in control. We're going to talk about that tonight. But like Jesus facing the agony of the cross, there are many martyrs today who are ready to pray, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's the challenge. So let me say as I finish this morning, trust God. Psalm 125 says this, those who trust in the Lord they're like Mount Zion. They cannot be shaken because their trust endures forever. It's a challenge. My challenge this morning is how much do you trust God? And I want to say this. I was inspired by Billy Graham's funeral. I thought of Billy Graham. I'd had him on campus at McMaster. On peace day, he preached the gospel, and they canceled. For only time in the history of the university, they canceled classes. And I thought of him, because what he said was, you trust God for salvation. And I thought, I'm neglecting the gospel. And I was inspired, and that's why I got a red slide. I want to finish with a warning. Red is for the blood of Christ shed for our sins, but red's for warning. Listen to the red slide. The first step that you must make, the first step of trust is to repent and realize you're a sinner and trust Christ as your own personal Savior. 
And I've been preaching here so many times and assuming you're all Christian believers and telling you to walk with the Lord and trust the Lord. And I'm doing it again, but I'm also telling you this, that if you don't know the Lord is your personal Savior, and if you're uncertain about that, everything's lost. What I've said about all the blessings God brings into our lives, it kicks in when you know the Lord. So I'm asking you, you know, talk to Malcolm or Aaron or one of the elders who you probably know better than me. Make sure that you trust Jesus. Because, and I'm going to play a little song on my speaker as I finish, and then maybe we've just got time to sing a verse of it too. The inner end, the bottom line, folks, is trusting Jesus. That's all. Now it's not. Father, help us to do that, we pray. We pray that each of us will leave today fully confident that we can trust you in all circumstances and then live to your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray for your help and blessing.